You're listening to Fence Posts, Foundations for the Christian Life. Fence Posts is a teaching ministry of Pastor Mike Woodruff of Christ Church Lake Forest. Anthropos, a study of you, me, and the rest of humanity. Who are you? Do you know? Do you have a thoughtful answer that extends much beyond your name? If we were sitting next to each other in the stands at a high school football game and I asked you this question, who are you, you'd likely tell me the name that's printed on your birth certificate. If I asked you again, you might identify yourself in connection to someone on the field. I'm Kyle's mom, he's number 83, or I'm Kelsey's dad, she's a cheerleader. Or tell me what you do, I'm a chemist at Avid, or I teach third grade at the local grade school. Chances are, if I asked a third time, you might say something about your citizenship. I'm an American, but then again, you might just get up and leave. But I'm going to keep asking because I still don't have the answer I'm looking for. What I want you to do is reflect on this question at the deepest level. Perhaps the better way to frame it is by asking what you are, not who you are. So, what are you? Are you an accidental collection of biochemical reactions? or a spiritual being with eternal value? Are you a stimulus response machine, a good person worthy of love, a sinful creature deserving punishment, or something else altogether? It's critical to wrestle with this question because who we are, or at least who we think we are, profoundly affects how we feel about ourselves, treat others, and define success. And yet few questions remain as unresolved as this one. After thousands of years of navel-gazing and debate, We've not only failed to agree on an answer, we're further apart than ever before. If we were to look down on this debate from 30,000 feet, we'd see that there are four perspectives vying for followers, three of which can be envisioned as the points of a triangle. The naturalists. In one corner are those who believe that humans are purely physical beings. Those in this camp, often called naturalists, argue that man is simply matter in motion, a carbon-based biped who temporarily sits in the top spot on the evolutionary ladder. People may choose to believe that there is more to them than can be explained by complex chemical reactions, but they're wrong. The universe is a closed system. What you see is all you get. When you die, the show is over. We are simply naked, soulless, chattering apes. The idealist. At a second point on the triangle are those who embrace an idealistic and mildly spiritual view of man. Those in this camp, uh, think Plato, disagree over just how important or harmful our physical body is, though most suggest it's dead weight at best. What makes us exceptional is our mind. We are rational beings marching towards a better life in society. All that ails us can be cured with a bit more time and insight. Think salvation by education. Some in this camp go so far as to elevate truth to the level of the divine. A few continue to suggest that utopia is just around the corner. The mystics. The third corner is held by those who embrace a more mystical anthropology. This group, comprised of New Age advocates, Eastern spiritualists, and other pantheists, also discount the body, but instead of celebrating the mind, they focus on humanity's half-conscious soul. Mystics believe that by waking their divine inner nature, they can gradually merge into the cosmic consciousness of the universe. Mystics contend that meaning is revealed through feelings and intuition rather than rational thought. Think salvation via yoga, meditation, and other paths towards enlightenment. The Christians. 
Somewhere in the middle of the triangle, suspended between all the other views, is the classic Christian understanding of man. It's one that celebrates body, mind, and spirit without promoting one over the other or suggesting that any are divine. This perspective, which was first articulated in the book of Genesis, claims that an eternal, personal, and transcendent spirit being, God, created a physical universe apart from himself, eventually creating mankind in his image and giving him, us, both a physical body and a soul. The Bible further suggests that we were created to enjoy a loving, eternal relationship with the Creator, but have fallen away because of the disobedience of our first parents. As a result of their sin, we have inherited a corrupt nature and have been cut off from the primary relationship we were designed for. This view is summarized in the third article in our Statement of Faith, which reads, We believe that man, created in the image of God through disobedience, fell from his sinless state at the suggestion of Satan. This fall plunged man into a state of sin and spiritual death and brought upon the entire race the sentence of eternal death. From this condition, man can be saved only by grace of God, through faith, on the basis of the work of Christ, and by the agency of the Holy Spirit. It's my conviction that this view is right. In fact, I'm basing my life upon it. Unfortunately, it's also my belief that many who endorse it do so without much appreciation for all it teaches. Therefore, before we explore the long-term issues related to man and his destiny, we need to start by establishing the basics. The Christian Perspective of Man What exactly does the Bible say about mankind? Where did we come from? What makes us unique? What do we really need to know? Systematic theologians, that is, those who study a topic from its first appearance in Scripture through the last things said about it, suggest that there are six essential aspects of humankind that we must understand. One, we are created beings. The Bible opens by announcing that God created everything, including humans. In fact, this, is, this point is made two times in the first two chapters. Genesis 1 opens by proclaiming, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 27, it states, and God created man. In Genesis 2, the story is retold in a slightly modified way. Quote, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. End of quote. There's much that could be said about this. The fact that we were made from dust highlights our humble origins, and the suggestion that we were created by the immediate action of God highlights our significance. But there are two points you must not miss. We have a creator, and we belong to him. And this is the second point. I am emphasizing, because this is the one many miss, what I am stating is, you belong to someone else. We may think that we're our own person, we might even brag about being self-made, but the Bible announces that God made us, and as a co any copyright attorney will tell you, creation implies ownership. You and I belong to God. Number two, we were created to glorify God. When you want to understand something's purpose, you ask the person who designed it. When we turn to the Bible to discover man's ultimate purpose, we learn that we were made for friendship with God. Or to steal a phrase from the Puritans, the chief aim of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is shocking news for many, especially those who believe that the chief end of God is to glorify man. But it's what the Bible teaches. The universe is ultimately theocentric, not anthropocentric. 
We're not the stars of the show. Even if we strut, pose, and pretend that we are, God is. Ours is a supporting role. We were made to worship. This does not mean that ours is a sorry lot, hardly. Every day arrives as a gift from a loving and gracious creator. Furthermore, loving him brings us joy. It completes us in a way that nothing else can because it's what we were created to do. Many do not understand this and as a result end up worshiping other things instead. Money, pleasure, power, etc. As St. Augustine rightly noted, Thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. We were created to glorify God. Number three, we were created in the image of God. The third thing we must understand is that we, that is you and I and every other person ever conceived, differ from every other form of life, including the angels, in one critical way. We bear God's image. Genesis 1.26 reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. What exactly is this image of God, this imago dei? What is it that makes us so unique? Augustine and Aquinas tied God's image to our ability to reason. The reformers expanded it to include our moral capacity. Emil Bruner linked it to our ability to love. G.K. Chesterton said it was showcased most vividly in our ability to laugh and draw. Karl Barth grounded it in our relationships. Others have tied it to our responsibility to oversee the earth. What is the image of God? Clearly, we cannot decide. But we should not let the 5% we cannot agree on distract us from the 95% that we do. What is certain is that we're special. We're more than mere creatures. By God's design, we are self-conscious moral agents charged with overseeing the earth and blessed with the ability to rise above instinct, think critically, and love others. Those who say we are only cosmic accidents, a sack of chemicals at best one labor grade higher than other primates, are wrong. We bear God's image, and that changes everything. In the same way that a child of a United States president can never be a nobody, you have value because you were created by, belonged to, and were fashioned in the image of God. Number four, we have the law of God written on our hearts. The fourth matter we must understand in order to make sense of who we are is that we have been hardwired by God with a handful of eternal truths. In other words, There are some things we cannot not know. The first thing on this list is that there is a God. But, to the point at hand, this list also includes a moral code. Even in this confused and confusing time, all people know that there is right and wrong. Let me state this more forcefully. There are foundational moral principles that are right for all and are known to all. This is not to say that everyone acknowledges these laws, even to themselves. They do not. Nor is it to say that these moral principles are known with perfect clarity. They are not. Relativism is now so pervasive that most people learn to override their innate sense of right and wrong. What I'm affirming is what the Apostle Paul established in the first chapter of his letter to the Romans when he wrote about men suppressing the truth. Quote, 
The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godless and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Paul additionally makes this point in chapter 2 of the same letter. There we read, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. At the risk of being redundant, let me state these two points as clearly as I can. There are universal laws as real and certain as 2 plus 2 equals 4. They are written on our heart. We may suppress them, but to be human is to know that they apply. 5. We are separated from God because of our sin. So far, I have stated that we are created beings, made in God's image, and designed to glorify Him. I've also contended that we know right from wrong because God has given us a conscience that, though it does not work perfectly, does enable us to know good from evil. We now come to the bad news, which I suspect you've been expecting all along, but which we need to examine in some detail because different problems demand different solutions. The most important account is found in the first few pages of Genesis. The stage is initially set in chapter 2, where we read, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The bad news is introduced in the next chapter. In Genesis 3, we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that, God, that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. This act was disastrous. Weakened by their jealousy and deceived by the serpent's lies, Adam and Eve, acting as our representatives, launched an ill-fated coup d'etat. They used their God-given freedom to commit an act of cosmic treason. The result was the death of innocence, the radical corruption of human nature, theirs and ours, and the end of man's friendship with God. Theologians refer to the events surrounding sin's entrance into the world as the fall and trace the pain, suffering, and darkness that riddle our lives back to this event. From Genesis 3 forward, all of creation suffers because of sin's entrance into the world. 
Disease, famine, injustice, oppression, natural disasters, and other vehicles of pain and sorrow trace their birth to this event. This wrong is not easily righted. Six, there is hope. Point number five raises all kinds of questions. Who is the serpent? Where did he come from? Did the fall destroy the image of God? Can it be fixed? Do we get a second chance? How is it fair that I'm in trouble for something someone else did? Over the course of these studies, we'll attempt to address these questions and others. But what I want to impress upon you at this moment are two critical points. The bad news is worse than I have expressed. In this brief exploration of our nature, I have spent most of the time on the positive side of the ledger, noting that we have been fashioned by a loving and all-powerful God in his own likeness and placed in a position of universal leadership. I did this intentionally because I want to emphasize that we, that you, are highly significant and greatly loved. However, I need to make it painfully clear that our present situation is actually quite bleak. The failed coup launched by Adam not only unleashed the powers of darkness upon earth, it left all of us broken beyond self-repair. Things are more perilous than we can possibly understand. In fact, if our status does not change before our physical death occurs, we face eternal death itself. And yet, there is hope. Man is in grave danger, but the merciful Creator has provided a way home for us. Redemption and restoration are possible. In fact, the plan for our salvation is outlined on the pages of the New Testament. We will turn our attention to the understanding of exactly how the rescue can take place, but before we do that, we need a more comprehensive understanding of our situation. In the next study, we will further explore the problems that face us. This will be followed by an exploration of what happens after we die, the fate of those who do not make peace with God, the way salvation works, and finally, the nature of heaven. But before we take the next step, I want to try to begin addressing some of the questions that have almost certainly surfaced. First, much of this study is based on the book of Genesis. Are we expected, even required, to interpret this book literally. The first several chapters of Genesis are enormously important and enormously controversial. Therefore, the way in which we understand them is vitally important. Are we expected to interpret them literally? I could literally answer this question in one word, yes, but that would be misleading because the literal definition of literal assumes that we are interpreting the author's intent in light of the genre being used. In other words, poetry is literally understood differently than prose, which is literally understood differently than wisdom literature. But that's not the way the term literal is used today. So let me note that the initial goal of all Bible study is to understand what the author means. My experience is that when people are asking whether to interpret the book of Genesis literally or not, they are particularly interested in the debate surrounding creation and evolution and in the historicity of Adam and Eve. Let's take these topics one at a time. Are followers of Christ expected to believe in creation and disbelieve in evolution? In order to answer this question, I need to start by noting that there are more than two camps engaged in the debate. In fact, there are at least five views in circulation at the moment. Naturalistic evolution, on the far left side of the continuum, is the view that all life forms came into being through natural means, that is, absent any supernatural or transcendent intervention. Naturalistic evolution contends that there is no God and that life evolved completely by chance. 
deistic evolution. Deistic evolution is best understood as naturalistic evolution with a divine jumpstart. Those in this camp believe that a passive deity began the process but then retired. He has not shaped history or answered prayers. God has given credit for masterminding the plan, supplying the raw materials, and setting the evolutionary process in motion, but little more. Theistic evolution. A few clicks further down the line are the theistic evolutionists who differ from their deistic neighbors in one critical way. Whereas the deists limit God's involvement to the beginning of the process, theistic evolutionists allow for his intervention at key points throughout the evolutionary process. Theistic evolutionists generally assume that God was directly and supernaturally responsible not only for the creation of matter in the beginning, but also for the simplest of life forms and for the creation of man. In terms of the latter, most think that God created Adam at a particular moment in time by infusing a human soul into an already established higher primate. Progressive creation. A fourth vantage point, one which is associated with old earth creationism, the day-age theory, and the intelligent design movement, argues that God's creative work was a combination of de novo, in other words, brand new acts, and progressive or ongoing operations. Those advocating this position argue that at various points in time, God created new creatures without using previously existing life, but that in between these special acts of creation, there were millions of years of development of those creatures. Progressive creationism accepts microevolution, changes within a species, but rejects macroevolution, changes that create a new species. Furthermore, progressive creationists hold that God created man from the dust of the earth in a special act of creation. Finally, fiat creationism. The final maintains, the final view maintains not only that the universe is the result of God's direct creative action, but also that virtually everything in it was spoken into existence over six 24-hour periods. Advocates of this view typically assume that the earth is between 10 and 20,000 years old. Who is right? Well, that depends entirely on who you ask. I favor progressive creation because it seems to blend what is revealed in Scripture and what is revealed in the study of God's creation through science, both of which I believe are sources of God's truth. However, since the purpose of this series is to map out the safe zone inside the fence posts, I'm not as interested in persuading you that I'm right as I am in helping you understand the implications of the various camps. To that end, I would argue that the three non-negotiable elements of the Genesis account are, first, we were created by God, second, we were created in his image, and third, we have fallen and need to be rescued. This means that the first two views naturalistic and deistic evolution, are outside the fence posts. The last three are not. We need to be gracious as well as thoughtful when we enter into debates on this topic, especially intramural ones. Perhaps some new discoveries or insights will allow us to resolve this issue in the future, but perhaps not. Were Adam and Eve real people? Related to the debate over evolution is a corollary question about Adam and Eve. Namely, did they exist or is it possible to understand this part of the Genesis account symbolically? 
I believe Adam and Eve were real people for two primary reasons. First, the genealogy found in Luke 3 traces Christ's lineage back through Adam, because it seems clear that Luke regarded the other people mentioned in the lineage as historical persons. I can only assume that he understood Adam to be a real person also. Second, the Apostle Paul believed Adam and Eve were real. Though he tells us we should not believe in Jewish myths, his statements in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, and 1 Timothy 2 make it clear that he believed Adam and Eve were real. In other words, they were not a myth. Are you required to believe this? No, although I get nervous as soon as anyone starts to ask, what's the least I can believe and get by? I'm even more uncomfortable when people start adding things to the gospel. That is, I get really nervous whenever anyone says, in order to be a Christian, you must believe X and Y or do A, B, and C. When the Philippian jailer asked the apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul responded, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He did not say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized or vote for a particular candidate and renounce evolution. Does that mean we can believe whatever we jolly well feel like? Of course not. The early church quickly captured the essential tenets of the faith in a series of statements such as the Apostles' Creed. In order to be baptized or to join the church, you had to affirm this essential core set of beliefs. The entire Fence Post series is based on the idea that there are non-negotiable items that must be affirmed in order to be inside the gate. The question before us, is belief in Adam and Eve part of that core? While I do believe in Adam and Eve, I do not believe such belief is part of the core. As noted earlier, discussions about Adam and Eve or about the serpent, tree of life, garden of Eden, etc. are essentially discussions about interpretation. What did the divinely inspired author intend to convey? Throughout most of church history, theologians have held that the Genesis account was real history, but have also recognized the presence of symbolic elements such as the tree of knowledge and the tree of life, which most have understood to be more than simple trees. We've been talking about the nature of man, but what exactly does it mean to be human? What makes a person a person? As I noted in the opening of this study, this is not a small question, nor are there any agreed upon answers. Marx says man is an economic animal. Nietzsche says that what is unique about us is our will to power. Much of the truly memorable literature of the past explores the question, and advances in biotechnical fields mean that the debates will only continue to grow more heated. The Bible teaches that humans are those who have been made in the image of God and given a soul. What is a soul? We've explored the image of God in a bit of detail. What is a soul? Does everyone have one? And how do our souls differ from our spirits? These are just a few of the questions theologians have been wrestling with over the last 2,000 years. I'm not going to attempt a comprehensive answer, but there are three things you probably do need to know. First, the Bible teaches that we are not simply physical beings. We have a spiritual dimension as well. The term soul is used to refer to this. Second, there's a bit of confusion over whether the term soul and spirit mean the same thing. Most theologians think that they do. Finally, it is important to avoid thinking that the body is bad while the soul and or the spirit is good. The Greek philosophers led some in the early church down this path, forcing the apostle John to speak out against this view. What the Bible teaches is that God made us with a physical dimension, and although it is now fallen, it was good. Though my physical body is not me, I would be reduced without it. 
Those who get confused in this point often view physical pleasure, even marital intimacy, as evil or limit the church's ministry to spiritual concerns only. What does it mean to glorify God? How are we supposed to honor him? Irenaeus, the second century church father who argued that the glory of God is man fully alive, would have surely scoffed at the way some have understood his words. Others have suggested that we glorify God through corporate worship or acts of service. Theologians suggest that at least occasionally we must understand our assignment in light of three specific directives. The first is the cultural mandate. In the first chapter of Genesis, God instructs Adam and Eve to oversee God's creation. Chapter 1, verse 28 reads, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Second, the gospel creed. In Matthew 22, Jesus instructs us to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And finally, the Great Commission. In the last words we hear from Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, he states, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Of course, this approach is only an overview of what we've been instructed to do, and each person has their own unique calling. But it serves as a framework to think about what we were created by God, why we were created by God in the first place. And it's likely quite jarring. Understanding that we've been given an assignment is the first shock. Understanding that God's glory trumps our personal agenda is the second. Realizing just how others-focused we are expected to be is the third. But there should be no confusion on this point. Our Creator created us to worship Him. That is the highest good. Finally, does the Bible teach that we are more important than other animals? Yes, and not just in degree, but also in kind. Being made in the image of God changes everything. It means that every person has been endowed with an almost sacramental value by God a value that eclipses that of any other living creature. This does not justify cruelty to animals, but it should inform our priorities. If there's any way we can help you on your spiritual journey, please contact us at cclf.org or email us at fenceposts at cclf.org.